Today, every answer matters more than ever before. Because whether it's about health, deliveries, or finance, some things just can't wait. That's why IBM is helping businesses manage millions of calls, texts, and chats with Watson Assistant. It's conversational AI designed to help your customers find the answers they need faster, no matter the industry. Let's put smart to work. Visit ibm.com slash watsonassistant to learn more. My mission is simple, to make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to Kramerica. If people want to make friends, I'm just trying to save you some money. My job is not just to entertain, but to educate, teach, put it in perspective. Call me at 1-800-743-CNBC or tweet me at Jim Kramer. After a real ugly day where the Dow tumbled 193 points, S&P plunged 0.68%, NASDAQ plummeted 0.81%, it pays to figure out where the bears are coming from. We want to get ahead of the naysayers. So prepare yourself. What will the Grizzlies and the Kodiaks maul us with tomorrow? How about this? Fang is dead! (gasps) Yeah, but Facebook, Amazon, Netflix, and Google now Alphabet have another down day like this one. That's exactly what you'll hear tomorrow. You think that's too jaded? Too jaundiced? I don't know anymore. The Fang stocks and other tech leaders have caught a cold here, but it feels like the market wants to quarantine them for a bad case of the bubonic plague. So tonight I want to defend these tech titans and others like them, because while their stocks may be heading down for the moment, none of them are dying. There's no plague rats, no buboes, no devastation, like the disease that wiped out a third of Europe and more than half the populations of some cities like Florence and Siena, two dynamite places worth visiting. Let's start with Facebook. What's happened here lately to justify the sell-off? Well, at this point, it's safe to say that the story of Facebook is the story of rapid adoption by all sorts of advertisers, including many that had stayed away from social media for a long time because they really didn't understand the platform. It's important to recognize that whenever we talk about the 5G wireless rollout, as my friend, colleague, buddy, pal David Faber did with Lowell McAdam for Verizon, we're talking about something that will make Facebook even more appealing to advertisers. They probably listened to the interview today and said, let's buy some ads on something on the web. In the meantime, Facebook seems to have put the Cambridge Analytica nightmare behind it after making many apologies and bringing in a committee of distinguished individuals, including the former Republican Senator John Kyle, to examine any political bias. You know, I think many of the Republicans in Congress will say, if it's good enough for Kyle, it's good enough for me, closing the door on one of the company's biggest vulnerabilities. On top of that, we know from the conference call that Facebook is just beginning to monetize WhatsApp. We know they're only, they've only begun to scratch the surface of the gigantic local ad market. Yeah, sounds good to me. Competition. Well, their main competitor, Snap, pretty much imploded thanks to its awful redesign. That's something we learned when they reported at the beginning of the month. Twitter's doing well, but that's not going to take away business from Facebook. If anything, it just expands the category. All right, how about Amazon? Worries there, down big. Now, we know Amazon's getting serious about advertising. We just learned that the company is testing a technology that will allow it to follow customers around the web, get them to come back to its online marketplace. Alphabet's Google has this technology. It's a threat. But again, I think there's plenty of room for both. Netflix, 
Always a little, always a little news here in Netflix. This morning, Piper Jeffrey came out with an outstanding survey, which showed that Netflix can raise prices much higher from these levels and not lose much business. Piper pulled 1,100 domestic subscribers and found that the company could raise prices from $11 to $15, and two-thirds of its users would happily absorb the increase. Gets better. Piper did an identical survey two years ago, and back then Netflix didn't have that much stickiness. You have to conclude that the company's benefiting enormously from its amazing original content. Alphabet? Easy. Last week, Alphabet had its developers conference, and there were a huge number of oohs and ahs about Waymo, the company's self-driving car. I was kind of blown away when UBS said that Waymo could create $114 billion in revenue by 2030. Now, that's much higher than others were expecting. I think the upside from Waymo is simply not baked into Alphabet's numbers, which means it could be a real needle mover, especially because right now it's costing Alphabet a lot. Now, let's do some substitutions, just in case you think I rigged it toward the original Fang. Suppose the A in Fang stands for, um, I don't know, what do you think? Um, Apple! Yeah, a stock that's snapped down for three straight days. Whoa, scary. Candidly, I feel better about Apple than I have since it reported. Why? Because this morning, Sanford Bernstein's Tony Saganegi, one of the most respected analysts on Wall Street, came out and said he feels, and I quote, incrementally better about the longer-term prospects of the company's service revenue stream, which you know I champion. Even though he still damned it with faint praise, questioning whether the acceleration was sustainable, he did say, and I quote again, we now see Apple is likely to hit its bogey of doubling services to 40 billion by the end of fiscal year 2020. You have to understand, Tony's Mr. Skepticism. So this was an astounding admission. Really bullish. It makes me feel more confident that Apple is a stock that you can buy into the market-wide weakness. Hey, maybe I'll actually upgrade it one day. What else? Oh, why don't we do this? Why don't we swap out the beloved Netflix for the now despised kick-a-dog NVIDIA? Once again, this stock really got clobbered today. Down 3.8%. Investors continue to reassess the company for that latest quarter. Yet the more I dig, the better I feel about NVIDIA's prospects in the data center. Gaming, autonomous driving, artificial intelligence, four probably the most, uh, let's say, um, esteemed themes in this market. I told ActionAlertsPlus.com club members today on my conference call that they'll get that they're going to be getting an even better chance to buy Nvidia as it goes down another 20 points from here. I think that's realistic given the way the stock trades. But if I'm so confident about these high flyers and their doppelgangers, what the heck are they going down for in the first place? I know there's plenty of chatter about how the 10-year Treasury has breached 3%. Oh, boy. Now, isn't that just the end, the end, the end, Jim Morrison? Well, uh, therefore, stocks should all trade down decisively. Now, that's absolutely true for stocks with high dividends. I mean, if we're talking about Clorox or Kraft Heinz or Coca-Cola or PepsiCo, their yields can no longer protect them from the mercies of the 10-year at these levels. Yeah, there's um, those stocks are getting hit. Higher rates make dividends a lot less attractive. Plus, these are all defensive stocks that tend to underperform when the economy is roaring, which is what we have. But this has nothing to do with FANG. Second explanation for the decline, North Korea just canceled talks with South Korea that were scheduled for tomorrow in response to some American and South Korean joint military exercises. But we didn't hear a peep out of China, and that's what matters when it comes to North Korea. Remember, China's the real puppet master. As long as the Chinese are on board, I think we're good with trade. Uh, by the way, did you see uh, my uh, old partner, Larry Kudlow, talking about the bromance between uh, the two presidents, China and the United States? Hmm, why not? Here's, t- here's how I see today's pullback. This entire market is getting a well-deserved breather, led by fine after gigantic rally. 
Many of the sell-offs in the last five years start like this. The next day, we tend to get a further down leg that encompasses other growth stocks and also brings down the health cares, which drop when people are concerned about inflation, a natural inference from higher interest rates. Finally, on day three, we see the industrials and the banks crack. But by then, Fang will have resurrected itself after some downgrades and some nasty press premature obituaries. So get ready to buy, not sell, the stocks that everyone loves to hate when they look like they are going down for the count. Why does it have to be like this? Because as I said last night, you're not going to see these stocks generate a lot of positive chatter because they're just so frightening when they go lower. And it's always the case that those who can't take the pain... The house of pain. ...will eventually just give up. I mean, that's when you have to pounce. No, no, no. I urge you to recognize the ebbs and flows of these high-flying stocks. Of course, if you can't take the pain yourself and you have good gains, feel free to ring the register. I, no one ever got her taking a profit. But here's the bottom line. I need you to steel yourself, stay strapped to the mast as the sirens begin to blare that Fang is dead. Next time you hear that Fang is dead, here's the correct response. Long live Fang! Mark in California. Mark. Hey, I got a North Lake Tahoe. Beautiful thunderstorm. Booyah to ya. I hadn't even thought of that, but good to have you on board. What's happening? <laughs> I have about 30 years IT data center engineering experience with uh, telco, defense, and government. And my network engineering peers tell me that Palo Alto Networks has no competition in its sophistication in detecting and preventing threats. There may be profitability issues, but I see de- decent debt ratio. And I'm just wondering if this... Uh, Movement we've seen the last couple of weeks has got some legs. Should be lifting this by now. Uh, your friends uh, agree with me. Mark McLaughlin and uh, Palo Alto's been my, they've been my champion for owning the stock that has the most exposure and is doing the best. Don't forget, I like Proofpoint for uh, when it comes to email. And we just keep seeing, I thought Forescout made a very good uh, account of itself last night. That's a good one, too. Why don't we go to Bill in Florida? Bill! Hey, Jim. Yes, this is Bill. Recently, McDermott International, MDR, did an acquisition of Chicago Bridge and Iron. However, just right before that, they did a reverse split. And they're working on some kind of a deal with Saudi Arabia on Aramco. What's uh, What's your opinion or outlook on MDR? You know what? I I do fear... um uh, no, no, uh, you, uh, way too many questions there and not enough answers. I saw an up, uh, upgrade today by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, a floor that I felt had come down enough that maybe that's a good one. But I'm not a big engineering construction fan. Why? Because I've seen it be such a hard thing for General Electric. Vance in North Carolina, Vance. Booyah, Jim. How are you? I am good. How about you, partner? I'm doing well. Hey, I'd like to thank you for all you do for us home gamers. Quite welcome. Hey, I recently purchased Trade Desk, TDD. It's a digital advertising platform that enables ad agencies to place a whopping 600 billion ads a year over streaming ads. They recently reported earnings that exceeded net income, exceeded revenue, increased guidance. And uh, since I bought it like two weeks ago, it's increased 63% for me. Can't imagine is it a buy but is it a hold or sell right uh, here's now? Here's what I want you I to do. I want to, to take. I want you to take out half of the money that you put in. Now you'd say, "Well, is there something wrong?" No, actually, the comp score was extraordinary, and the analyst notes are fantastic. But it's up another five points today. I mean, this stock is not. No stock is bulletproof. You take out half of what capital you put in. 
I will be able to sleep at night. All right, Fang is not dead. Long live Fang, but let them bury it tomorrow. You know how the game works. It's alive and well, though. Bye, haters. Oh, man, buddy, today, sure, it's easy to blame the weather, but does Home Depot actually have a point? I'm eyeing the company after today's stock decline. Then, is there an animal more unloved on Wall Street right now than Mickey Mouse? The stock's been struggling, but I'll tell you why gambling could help bring the magic back. And with the 10-year Treasury surging to its highest level since 2011, today, you, well, you might be worried about investing in the REITs. I got another way to play real estate, C-B-R-E. So stick with Kramer. Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer, hashtag Mad Tweets. Send Jim an email to madmoney at cnbc.com or give us a call at 1-800-743-CNBC. Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com. The earnings are relentless, and the schedule is grueling. But Kramer has burned the midnight oil, and he's ready to run the gauntlet to find you a raging bull market. Powerful executives, scores of tough questions. All week, Kramer sits down with some of the market's most influential C-suite players. Join Mad Money on air and online for must-see interviews you can't afford to miss. Within seconds of Home Depot reporting a rare same-store sales miss this morning, we saw a flurry of articles about how there's a slowdown in housing, and even the great orange big box chain couldn't buck the trend. The stock instantly plummeted five points. Pre-market trading. So I found myself saying on Squawk on the Street that it might pay to actually hear what Home Depot has to say before drawing any real conclusions. Didn't matter. Conclusions were drawn, and the stock stayed down five until the conference call got going. And management explained how the quarter was basically assaulted by bad weather pretty much everywhere in this country. Stocks seemed to stabilize, as if the seller said, mm, wait a second, maybe we're overreacting. And then the selling just stopped. Stock gapped up four from the bottom when Carol Tomei, the redoubtable chief financial officer, gave the cadence of the quarter positive 5.6% February, positive 5.9% March, and only positive 2.2% in April. Turns out the despot missed Wall Street's 5.6% target because the long winter did a real number on the results in the incredibly important month of April. Then Tomei gave us the kicker when she pointed out that, and I quote, while spring was a reluctant bride, she has arrived and our stores have the inventory necessary to meet demand, which is a good thing as month to date for the company. Our May comparable store sales are double digit positive. Up double digits, huh? I could see the seller's jaws drop. The stock jumped three points, practically canceling out the whole decline. After all, double digit same store sales for a chain of 2,285 locations is practically unheard of. Plus, as the company delineated the weakness in April, you can tell that the lost business, mostly gardening-related, by the way, will be made up during this quarter, something management confirmed during the Q&A. 
You might be thinking, wait, can't online, which is up 20% year over year, make up for those lost weather-related sales? Here's how CEO Craig Manure answered that question, and I quote, so there actually is an impact from a seasonal standpoint in the online business. When it's snowing on the ground in April, people aren't look, really looking online for patio furniture. Hey, how bad was the weather, really? Tomei put it succinctly, and I quote, as you may have personally experienced, April was one of the coldest and snowiest months in more than 20 years. In other words, it's crazy to look at these numbers from Home Depot and interpret them as meaning that the housing market is stinking up the joint. Frankly, I'm downright appalled by the people who wrote those headlines. How could any journalist reach this conclusion without even listening to the conference call? It's media malpractice. Oh, and just to be sure, without even being asked, Home Depot noted that the interest rate on the 10-year Treasury breaking out above 3% has not hurt, and but they think will not hurt sales, even as higher rates do drive mortgage rates higher. Why? Because housing remains incredibly affordable. That means the contractors out there who love Home Depot because it has amazing technology, lets them to get in and out of the store rapidly or just get their stuff delivered within two hours or four hours, Take that, Amazon. Well, they haven't seen any slowdown. If anything, you get the sense that with the spring finally getting going, the contractor boom is alive and well. Now, obviously, the market was terrible today, so Home Depot stocks still end up getting slammed. It closed down three bucks, in part because it ran up in the quarter. Still, when you actually listen to the conference call, which I tell you, you must, it's clear that the only read-throughs from this quarter are positive, not negative. And for the record, when a company is outstanding as Home Depot blames its problems on the weather, it may make sense for once to give them the darn benefit of the doubt. Much more mad money, including my take on Disney. How can the Supreme Court's ruling on sports gambling bring the magic back to Disney? Well, then, as interest rates continue to reach new highs, I'm sitting down with the one real estate player that seems to be working in this market. Don't miss my exclusive with CBRE. And I'm going to see a food service equipment built provider, well-built, one of my favorites, about the company's plans to get its stock rolling. So stick with Kramer. Tomorrow. Kick off the trading day with Squawk on the Street. Live from Post 9 at the NYSE. Did we do a trade deal together? Yeah, I'll trade you your tie. I like it. I'll take a couple of those houses, at least for a week at a time. I think it's a good trade. Have a little inventory. You know what? I'll lend you some of them. Beautiful. I'll give you this. It all starts at 9 a.m. Eastern. Some stocks just can't seem to get the credit they deserve. Even when the underlying companies put up terrific results, they have a lot of trouble getting traction from Wall Street. So on a not-so-hot day for the averages, I want to address one of the most unjustly overlooked stocks in the market. I'm talking about Walt Disney. Even with a strong quarter reported last week, not to mention a stunning theme park business, a budding online platform, two of the biggest movie franchises in history that have become blockbuster machines of Marvel and Star Wars, and, of course, the potential acquisition of 21st Century Fox that could be a total game changer if they win what looks like it could be a bidding war, the darn thing still gets no respect, and it feels kind of stuck here. So if the fundamentals don't seem to be in control of Disney's share price, that means we need to go off the charts, right, with the help of Tim Collins. He's a brilliant technician, my colleague at RealMoney.com, to see if the technicals can give us a better read on the situation. As Collins sees it, there are few animals more unloved on Wall Street than Mickey Mouse. For a year now, Disney's stock has oscillated in a stagnant pool that's more Everglades swamp than pristine Florida beachfront. 
The problem? No one seems to care that Disney's movies keep breaking records between Black Panther and the new Avengers film. Disney's Marvel Studios will have taken in $3 billion in global box office receipts this year. And that's just two titles. Then there's the new Star Wars prequel coming out in a week and a half. These things have been monsters. Throw in the fact that the company's been a voracious buyer of its own stock, and it's downright puzzling, frankly, that this market only seems to be focused on one thing, subscriber losses at ESPN. Now, maybe the Supreme Court's recent ruling that struck down a federal ban on sports gambling will be exactly what ESPN needs to turn things around. Give viewers some skin in the game, and they'll have a lot more incentive to actually watch that game. But if we really want to understand what's happening here, we need to look at Disney's charts, starting with the longer-term weekly chart. Now, as Collins points out, when you gaze at this picture, there's one pattern that really does pop out, and it's very obvious to everyone, from Mickey to Minnie to Donna to Pluto and even Goofy. He's talking about this head and shoulders pattern, which is one of the most reliable bearish formations around. Bearish. Remember, head and shoulders is just a higher peak in between two lower peaks that sort of looks like a head between two shoulders. And when technicians see one of these, it tends to really freak them out. According to Collins, the neckline of this pattern sits at 99 bucks, okay? And extends all the way back to last September. You're really going back pretty far there. The idea behind this thing is that if Disney breaks down below 99, it could potentially have another dozen points of downside before it finds its footing. But while some traders may fear this line, Collins embraces it. Why? Because this $99 neckline gives a very clear point where the bears could be wrong. If Disney pulls back below this level on a weekly basis, then Collins knows it's time to sell the stock. In fact, he he thinks you should actually wait until it pulls back below 98 just in case it overshoots the downside before bouncing. Um, uh, uh, Basically, this, but for bouncing, I'm sorry, basically this head and shoulders pattern means that if you buy Disney, well, he thinks your risk is well-defined. And given that the stock is currently just under 103, your potential losses could be contained if you take Collins' advice. But why does he think you should buy Disney in the first place? Well, in part, it's because the stock is very close to invalidating this whole entire head and shoulders pattern. That's why. Disney pressed up against a ceiling of resistance that lines up with the right shoulder. If it rallies a buck from here, the whole bearish pattern is finished. In other words, Collins thinks that there are a bunch of short sellers who will be forced to cover their positions, meaning buy back the stock, if Disney can just advance one buck from this level. And it's not just that the stock is on the verge of pushing through its ceiling resistance. I want you to take a look at the full stochastic oscillator down at the bottom. We call it the full stow here, which helps technicians detect when a stock has gotten overbought or oversold. A few weeks ago, the full stochastics made what we call a bullish crossover. Black line goes above the red one, typically a positive signal. At the same time, they're Picking up from extreme oversold territory, meaning the stock went down too far too fast when it sold off earlier this year. Collins thinks it's due for a nice bounce. For example, when the Stokosics did the same thing last July, so we go back a little bit, the stock caught a small pop. When they did it again in October, well, then it got a huge move higher. We're talking about rallies of 5 and 10% respectively. Put it all together, and Collins' near-term target for Disney is $108, with a probable retest of the stock's 112 high before the end of the year, possibly even before autumn. Hey, I'll take that. But let's, why don't we do this, though? Let's confirm things. Let's go to the short-term daily chart. Daily, okay? Now, look at this, how different it is. Collins sees this picture. 
He says you might see some similarity, only but with not as much of as a grim head and shoulders pattern hanging over your head. See, it's kind of much more subtle. Collins noted that earlier today, Disney was pressing against its ceiling of resistance at $102.75. And you know what? It actually broke through that ceiling in the last hour of trading, settling just below 103. In other words, above 102.75, Collins thinks the chart becomes a lot more bullish and more momentum-oriented traders will start buying hand over fist. We're kind of there. On top of that, the stock has now had multiple closes above the 50-day moving average. Uh, this is something that Disney stock had struggled with since early February. So Collins thinks this change of character is worth noting. Ironically, while the average got punished today, Disney continued to hold up just fine. I love that relative strength. Now, Disney also got hit last week on high volume. And you can see the volume spike. And this is something the bears might use to argue that the stock really wants to go lower. Collins, he's got a totally different take. Sure, Disney had a big spike in volume on a couple of down days, but these sessions were immediately followed by a nice bounce. To him, it looks like many of the weak hands got washed out, leaving Disney with a more confident shareholder base. Just look at how quickly the stochastic's relative strength, okay, a powerful momentum indicator surged to new highs during last week's mini sell-up. This is what chartists call a positive divergence when a stock is going lower, but your technical tools say it should be going higher. Sure enough, Disney quickly made up all those losses and then some. On the daily chart, Collins sees his near-term target is 105. Uh, that's about two bucks from where Disney's currently trading. That may not sound like much, but he's talking about something that could happen in the next few weeks at most. Remember, as Collins sees it, Disney has very well-defined risk-reward. If the stock goes below 98, the bulls lose, and he wants to be a seller because he thinks that could signal a much bigger breakdown. But above 103, just $0.08 above from here, and he expects Disney to give you a big breakout to the upside. Bottom line, the charts interpreted by Tim Collins suggest that Disney, the happiest place on earth, is ready to make the bulls some of the happiest traders in the market. As for me, I'm a huge fan of Disney. While I like it just fine here, personally, i got to tell you something. If it does get hit because of any of this technical stuff, call me a buyer. Because you know what? Disney stock, when it goes down, it actually gets cheaper. Dennis in Michigan. Dennis. Hi, Jim. I'm calling about MGM. It's been down recently over 5%, and today another percent. Yet it dominates Las Vegas, has various locations throughout the United States, and Macau. And now with sports betting, this should be very, very beneficial. Your thoughts? Is it a buy now? You bet it is. I think the stock is wrong. I know that's a gutsy thing to ever call a stock wrong, but I'd be a buyer here, and if it dropped down again, I would be buying buy, some buy, more. Buy, buy. Jim Yorn's doing a great job. I saw him on TV. I think he's got game. I think you want to buy MGM. Pooja in Illinois. Pooja. Hi, Jim. Thank you so much for taking my call. Of course. I really like the way you break down market events for the day. Thank you. My question to you is about CBS Carp. This stock has been on the downside since last year, and I've been following it. What, and what's the potential impact of the recent lawsuit over for the Viacom merger that's and that's been in the box. Well, Pooja, i got to tell you something. I listened to David Faber, who's my partner in the morning, and there is going to be a hearing to get a, a temporary restraining order. And nobody knows which way it's going to go, despite the fact that some people are actually claiming that they do. And that means it's a dice roll, and we do not invest in dice rolls in Kramer. Okay, Disney's back. The charts suggest that this stock could make investors really happy. You know what? I agree, okay? I think Iger's doing a great job. I would, I would say buy it, 
now and buy some on a pullback. I doubt you'll get it. Much more mad money, including real estate giant CBRE. Find out what propelled this stock over 30% higher over the past year and see if the move could continue despite the market's unknowns and interest rates. Then, eating at McDonald's recently, how about a Wendy's, maybe an Applebee's? Then your food was probably prepared on well-built equipment. I'm cooking up some questions for the CEO. And all your calls, rapid fire, in tonight's edition of The Lightning Round. So stick with Kramer. Now that we're through the thicket at the heart of earnings season, i got to tell you, I feel like this market has been a harsh judge of these results. Take Wellbuilt, WBT. That's the maker of food service equipment for the restaurant industry that was spun off by Manitowoc. That's the crane company back in 2016. Now, you know I've been a fan of this breakup because there's no universe where Manitowoc's heavy-duty construction equipment belongs under the same roof as Wellbuilt's grills, walk-in refrigerators, high-speed ovens, beverage machines, and, of course, the Frymaster. Yet, even though the restaurant stocks have caught fire this year, Wellbuilt hasn't gotten enough of that love. In fact, the stock's down 18.5% for 2018, after being a really solid performer 2016 and 17. So what the heck's happening here? When the company reported a solid quarter in February, management gave what people thought was disappointing guidance. The stock got slammed. But then a week ago, Wellbuilt reported again, and the numbers were great. Four-cent earnings beat off an 11-cent basis, higher than expected revenue. They reaffirmed their, their earlier guidance. I think they're being conservative, frankly, and the stock popped 3%. However, over the past week, it's given back nearly all of those gains. I feel like Wellbuilt's not getting the credit it deserves here. As the stock sells for less than 18 times next year's earnings estimates, despite having a 20% long-term growth rate, that makes it cheap. You don't have to take it from me. Let's dig in deeper with Hubertus Muhlhauser. He's the president and CEO of Wellbuilt. Get a better sense of the quarter and where the business is headed, Mr. Muhlhauser. Welcome back to Mad Money. Hey, Good to man, see you, sir. You okay, Hubertus. All right, now I think people don't understand. They're used to thinking of this as a big cyclical business. In fact, there are some imperatives, whether it be labor-saving, energy, avoidance of food waste, something that the smaller footprint, these are things that make it so restaurants have to upgrade. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the, the industry, by the way, it's not a cyclical industry. It's a very stable industry. Right. And we're right now very stable on a low level, though. But there's all good news out there. And I think if you look at the trends that you just mentioned, you see that the general market, which is the smaller restaurants, but also the QSRs are coming back. So we're actually very bullish on the market opportunity this year. And we're very bullish on ourselves as well. All right. So the quick serve restaurants worldwide are doing uh, coming yes. back, right? They're coming back. They had a trough. They're yes. coming back. And we saw that. And we had several rollouts um, started by the end of the last year and then also in Q1. Actually, we had like so many rollouts that we were kind of overwhelmed with them. So, so that's a very positive news for us and, of course, for our shareholders because sales are going to go up. Well, people should recognize, I mean, you've got some big international change. I mean, you have McDonald's, Starbucks. I mean, they're putting up stores. Yeah. These companies are not stagnant. Yeah, what you see there is they, they, have, they have invested in the past in the front of the house. So they've invested in their in, in digital infrastructure, connectivity. Use your iPhone today to order food. Right. And what happens now is those investments that are made in the front of a house, they now make in the back of a house, in the kitchen. So they invest into connectivity and they invest into automation. And we are seen as the leaders in automation and connectivity. So that's driving ourselves and that's helping us. Now, I think it's also important to point out that one of the largest costs for restaurants is electricity. Uh, and you need to have uh, machines that are, are far more advanced than they used to be. That's also another upgrade cycle. That's a huge upgrade for us. And you know we're investing heavily into, into innovation, and but also into energy efficiency. 
efficiency. Right. So we've been like five years or six years in a row, Energy Star partner. We won like eight different prices early in the year. So the show goes on. So I could tell you more. It's amazing. Okay, well, I want to talk about innovation because there's some things that are going on that are so exciting. Next generation uh, procurement, uh, really important. But the Zoom partnership is amazing, particularly because people love to stay at home. They love good money. like yeah. to go out or they like it brought in. This is keeping it hot and fresh, right? Zoom, Zoom is interesting. Zoom is, is revolutionizing delivery model. Um, in the past, we said that 50% of disposable income is, eat on, is spent on eating outside of the house. Right. Today, we say prepared outside of the house because delivery has taken off. Right. And, um, and with this taking off of delivery, what you see is right now is that Zoom is trying to optimize the delivery model. Because if you get your pizza, you order your pizza, the pizza is in transit actually 30 to 45 minutes. Right. It gets really cold in that time. So the question is that Zoom is trying to answer, how can we optimize that last mile of delivery. So how can we basically put kitchen on trucks? And that's what we're doing in partnership with them. And we're the exclusive partner. And they have completely revolutionized. So if you are in the Silicon Valley today, you're ordering your Zoom pizza. Um, your order goes into a truck. The truck drives to your place. And while it's driving to your place, it's baking the pizza fresh. So when you get a pizza, you get it without preservatives, without chemicals. And it's only three, four minutes old. And it all comes with well-built equipment. So we're extremely proud of that partnership. And the good thing is with Zoom, just to finish on that one, they create a platform. So, so they, they don't want to do it exclusively for Zoom pizza. So they want to establish that platform for other, you know, delivery services. Sure. So, and also for other products. I mean, you can bake, grill, fry on a truck. So great opportunity for us. And again, we are exclusive with them. I mean, one day I have to believe I was watching Phil Lebeau today talking about in Phoenix, we can have autonomous driving trucks yeah. with a guy in the back making the pizza. And that is going yeah. to be just a huge windfall. Well, for you these. don't need a guy in the back because the pizzas are basically baked automatically. Because we're completely automating it. <laughs> You, you probably need a little bit something there, but 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 it's it's right now it goes into full automation. Yeah. Well, uh, I've got to tell you, your company is doing so much innovation. We didn't even get to China. We're gonna have to save that. But I just love what you're doing, and I think this is a great opportunity. You are the best at what you do. That's Hubertus Muhoiser. He is the CEO of Wellbuilt, which we have liked ever since the, the split up, and like it even more. Mad Money's back after the break. It is time. It's time for the light. We're going to run for one of those. And then the light runs over. Are you ready? Skate. Dad, it's time for the light. We're going to start with Tony Connecticut. Tony. Oh, yeah. From all the guys at Pratt Whitney Aircraft. How are you today, Jim? Man, you know how much I like United Technology. Say hi to Mr. Hayes. What's going on? I'm thinking about Chesapeake Energy. What do you think? No, just keep thinking. Do not keep buying sell, because sell, that's sell. not gas, and we got too much of that in this country. Kirby in Florida. Kirby! Hey, Jim. Love the show. Booyah! Well, thank you very much, man. That's spirited. How can I help? Shout out to Gary, Judy, and Barney. Jim, bought ADAP a few months ago. Made about 50%. Should I sell it or just hold on? Which one? Because I couldn't catch the name. ADAP, Adapt Immune. Oh, Adapt Immune, man. Well, come on. You know what? This is not. You speculated you won. Let's not go back to the world. Let's go to Bob in Illinois. Bob. Good afternoon, Jim. Love your show and you. your advice. Was wondering uh, about investing in Icon Enterprise. Look, I like Carl Icon very much. I absolutely love when Wolves fight by my friend scott wapner 
Uh, but you know what? I don't really know what's in Icon Enterprises, so therefore I'm not going to be able to opine or recommend the stock. Tim in Florida. Tim. How you doing, Jim? Beautiful Hi. beaches. Booyah from the villages, Florida. Thank you for caring and sharing. Man, I do care. I, I got to tell you that. My wife says enough already. I say no. Let's keep going. How can I help? My stock is Bristol Myers, BMY. Bristol Myers right now does not have what we're looking for in terms of that cancer franchise. It's gone to Merck. Uh, I got to tell you, it, down here with a 3% yield, it gets attractive, but because the interest rate's going higher, I'm going to have to take a pass for the moment. Aaron in Virginia. Aaron. Hey, Kramer. Thanks for taking my call. Of course. So I'm updating my portfolio, and I wanted to know your thoughts about Quad Graphics. All right, Quad Graphics has a low price earnings multiple because it has no growth whatsoever. It's got a 6% yield. But you know what? I'm not reaching for yield when I got a situation with no growth. I'm taking a pass on that, too. Jack in Connecticut. Jack! Hey, thanks for taking my call. Of course. I, I own Spectre Energy in my retirement account, and I wanted to add to my position. It's natural gas transit. People are worried about natural gas transit. If it were oil transit, I'd be two thumbs up. But right now, I've got to tell you, it's got a 9% yield. It's a little bit It's a little bit worrisome for me. I hope it can grow into that yield, but right now, I'm taking a pass. I need to go to Brian in Texas. Brian. Jim, how are you today? I am good. How about you, Brian? I'm okay. Uh, boy, sports is certainly alive in Philadelphia, isn't it? Sport in Philly? Yeah. Best time. Uh, okay. Jim, my stock has God, God, awful equity ratings. You liked it at 80. It went to 90. Now it's at 74. I'm originally from Brooklyn, and I love New York. My stock is Consolidated Edison, Mr. Ed, symbol ED. Mr. Ed is a buy-buy-buy. This stock comes down. It's when you buy it. I'm going to throw in a twofer. I'm giving this man a twofer. I'm throwing in American Electric Power. Buy, buy half the situation now and buy the half if it goes down again. But I don't know. This stock is a high-quality utility. Let's take another. I want to go to OSTAP in Pennsylvania. OSTAP. Booyah, Jim. I want to thank you for your show. It's very interesting. I would like to know your opinion on El Brandt. They were hit really hard this year. I am concerned about El Brandt, even though it's down 44%. It's got a 7% yield. But you know what? Again, like another caller that we had about quad graphics, I am not in this business to be able to overpay for yield. I want growth, even if it means a lower yield. So I'm going to say again, don't buy. Don't buy. Now we're going to Mike in California. Mike, Mike, Mike. Yes, Jim. What happened to Clorox? Clorox is caught up in this whole vortex. It's caught up in the vortex of the 10-year Treasury going above 3% yield. I do think that Clorox does have great growth possibilities, and it's at 18 times earnings. I'm going to say you can buy half now, and then if it goes down to 4%, you buy, buy, buy the other half. And that, ladies and gentlemen, conclusion of the Lightning Round. The Lightning Round is sponsored by TD Ameritrade. With the yield of the benchmark 10-year Treasury surging up to its highest level since 2011 today, making investors feel kind of gun-shy about buying the high-yielding real estate investment trust, it's worth remembering that there are other ways to play this booming business. Remember CBRE Group, which now trades under CBRE, a much more straightforward symbol than its old one? CBRE is the world's largest purveyor of commercial real estate services. They help real estate investors by giving them outsourced leasing, sales, appraisals, development, and property management services, along with a lot of helpful technology. Now, after rallying nearly 40% last year, this stock has put on another 8.4% for 2018. Plus, roughly two weeks ago, CBRE reported a darn good quarter, giving us a bountiful top and bottom line beat, 
20% earnings growth, even as the first quarter tends to be the slowest time of the year. And while the stock moved up on the news, it's still down about 3% from its all-time high about a month ago. So could this thing have more upside? Let's check in with Bob Salentic. He's the president and CEO of CBRE Group to find out more about how his company's doing. We're set up, Mr. Salentic. Welcome back to Mad Money. Good to see you, sir. Jim, good to see you. Congratulations on just uh, still one more great quarter. And I think what people have to recognize is you can be in a real estate investment trust and be at the mercy of the of the uh, 10-year or the 30-year, or you can be involved with a company like yours, which has strong secular trends that are backing it that are not tied up to the 10-year at all. That's right, Jim. We have two big customer groups, occupiers of commercial real estate mm-hmm. who hire us to provide various services and investors in commercial real estate. Occupiers are outsourcing more and more services to companies like ours. Since I've come into the business, investors have put 5x, five times the amount of capital into commercial real estate that they had previously. And both of those client groups are consolidating the number of service providers they use around the world. Well, that's just the biggest name, um, or the biggest customer base. That's been a real, real positive for us. And if people are worried about inflation, what is there a better hedge than uh, being in commercial real estate? Well, commercial real estate is a good hedge, but what's really helping our investors is these secular trends and our long-term growth. We are now eight years into double-digit earnings growth. That's amazing. And we've said that we expect to do- grow those earnings double-digit again this year. Now, one of the things that I thought was outstanding was that you cited both Germany and Japan as strong. You know, Germany, I get a stronger economy, but there's always issues. Japan's doing well, huh? We've had a long-term, really positive run in Japan and across Asia. We've, now we can serve our clients around the world better than we ever could before. We're more connected. That means Japan. That means India. That means China. And then we've added a lot of talent and upgraded our leadership teams in those markets. We've had a strong run across Asia for the last several years. I thought it was interesting someone asked on the, on the call that if you recruit, that is the solution for the secret of how you can have an out year's great numbers. Well, recruiting's been a big opportunity right. for us. And like clients that come to us, brokerage professionals want to be somewhere that where they can do more than they can do anywhere right. else. So when we go out into the marketplace and try to hire brokerage professionals, we have a big advantage. They can come into our business and make more money here than they can make elsewhere. Okay, I also like the advantage that you're giving to people with big data, including predictive analysis. Can you give us an example of what you, can, what you predicted for customers? Well, I want to start with what we do for customers. Okay. We manage 5 billion square feet of space around the world. We have office space with almost 9 million people occupying that office space. We have a lot of information about what goes on in those buildings, the operation of those buildings, what the users of those buildings want. And by the way, we've now started to develop a application called CBRE360. It's an experience app for the users of those buildings, and we're using a lot of the data we're collecting to help occupants use the buildings more efficiently and attach to the amenities and the experiences that they so much want. Well, let me get your uh, just your feel for some of real estate. I was over at this Robin Hood terrific foundation yesterday at the Javits Center. Uh, the Hudson Yard seems like the biggest project I've ever seen. I did a, a feature last year, uh, a downtown real estate. Is there too much real estate in New York or any other markets, or is it all going to get filled, you think? In my entire career, which is approaching 35 years now, we've never been this deep into an expansion and had so little vacancy. So little vacancy. Vacancy in in markets around the world. That doesn't mean there aren't pockets where there's some vacancy. But when you look at New York, you see all this new space that's been added. Much of it's been spoken for before it's ever been built. 
the amount of office space that plans that's planned to come online in New York over the next several years will only add two or three percent to the basis of office space. And of course, you have some becoming antiquated along the way. So I think things are generally in good shape. You know, you made me feel good, okay? Because I'm always worried about overbuilding because that's a sign that I, we got to be careful from my, you know, my point of view of the stock business. Mm-hmm. But what you said, and you've got the worldwide uh, feel, makes me feel a lot better. I want to thank Bob Salentic, the president and CEO of CBRE Group. What an amazing performing stock. And now you see why. It's an amazing performing company. They have money's back after the break. What's better than Mad Money? How about more Mad Money? Follow Mad Money on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram to go one-on-one with Kramer. Reaction. What other questions do we have? Ah, I always tell people you've got to start with an index fund because I need you to be diversified. Get more with guests. How do you stay sharp? And go behind the scenes with the most interactive show on television. If you can't explain in three bullets why you're buying a certain stock. Don't buy it! Follow Mad Money today. I'm not Karnak the Magnificent, but I can predict some of the future. And that is that if the FANG stocks go down, you are going to hear people say, you know what, I told you FANG was over. Apple moved too much, too. That's the double A FANG. And I am telling you that this is the way of all things. It's what happens. And what you have to do is take advantage of the the absolute corners inquest that's about to occur with these and pick one. I don't care which one you buy. The largest position for my charitable trust, though, for uh, the ActionLearnersPlus.com club is Amazon. And I think the fact that it's still well below where it traded after that big spike at night makes me think that may be the one that you should start liking into. Like I said, there's always a bull market somewhere. I promise I'll find it just for you right here on Mad Money. I'm Jim Cramer, and I will see you tomorrow. 1980s New York. Five titans redefined the American dream. Helmsley, Bosky, Gotti, Trump, Giuliani. Greed was good, and they wanted it all. Empires of New York, narrated by Paul Giamatti. Series premiere November 29th at 8 Eastern, only on CNBC-TV.